So my normal audience is our um, Bible class young people up in the loft. Um, so this is very different. Um, it's a really nice change um, to be looking out um, at all of you this evening. Um, and hopefully um, you go away tonight um, having felt the Lord speak to you through um, through the passage of Jonah and through what um, I'm about, about to say. Um, for plagiarism purposes, um, I'm leaning very heavily on Tim Keller's book, um, The Prodigal Prophet, tonight. Um, so we'll just put out that out there at the start. Uh, if there is something you hear tonight or you um, enjoy the style of the content, um, feel free to borrow the book from me, or it's probably available in all good Christian bookshops. Um, so that is where the majority of tonight's content um, is coming from. So we do like our books in Bible class. We do like to, to pick something and kind of work our way through. So I kind of stuck to what, to what I know and what I'm used to. So um, that is what we are working mostly from this evening. So the story of Jonah, we have all heard it so many times. Um, it's definitely a favorite um, and a go-to for children's work uh, and something which we are all so familiar with um, that probably the most of us would have known the story without even having to read, read out of the Bible this evening. Um, as our Bible class people might know, um, I really like the finer details. Um, I know when we were studying Acts, I think they were fed up with me looking at maps of Paul's journeys and pinpointing exactly where he went too many days it took him to get there. Um, so apologies if I go into too many of the finer details tonight. Um, the, the history teacher in me, um, I know in primary school, but we do like to say we're, we're jack of all trades uh, in primary school. So um, the, the history slash geography teacher in me um, may come out um, through some of the details as we're going through um, this evening. So as I said, we did hear from Jonah last Sunday morning with Alistair Gordon, um, but hopefully as we go through tonight, there's something you may hear um, different from that um, as, as the word is open to us. So the chapter of Jonah um, starts in the usual way as it did for many of the Old Testament prophets. The word of the Lord came. That was a very familiar opening um, to many of the Old Testament prophets. So that is normal, but that's where um, the story of Jonah and the calling of Jonah, that's where it stops being normal. As early as verse 2, we can start to see that the calling of Jonah is different to that of the other prophets around the same time. Jonah, as we know, was called to go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim. We kind of brush over that when we're talking to children. It's just kind of, oh, that's okay. He's going to Nineveh. But this is very different to what happened with the, the similar prophets at the time. It's different because this was a call for a Hebrew prophet to leave Israel and go to a Gentile city. So before Jonah and around the same time as Jonah, the prophets such as Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Amos all did have some brief encounters in pagan countries, but none of them were actually called to go to those countries. That's why Jonah's mission could be described as being unprecedented. He was called to go to a pagan city. The second reason this calling was shocking is the actual city of Nineveh itself. Um, and as I was saying, all too often when we're talking to children, we say, oh, Nineveh's bad. It's a bad city. There were bad people there. 
Um, now, as a P6 teacher, bad is not a word that I like. I would be asking for a better synonym for the word bad. I'd be looking for a more exciting adjective than the word bad. Um, but in this case, bad doesn't even begin to cut it for Nineveh. Nineveh was on an entirely different scale of bad. So Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and this was one of the cruelest and most violent empires in ancient times. Um, according to a writer, Erica Bleibtreu, um, in her article aptly entitled Grizzly Assyrian Record of Torture and Death, Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. I could go into some details about just how awful um, the Assyrians were, um, but that wouldn't even slightly be appropriate this evening. Um, and I do know as we were going through Judges, Philip left in all of the gory bits, um, and that did particularly pique the interest of a few of our uh, members here. Isn't that right, Jack? Who liked the gore and the guts. But Nineveh is in a whole different scale of bad. If you want to do a little bit of research into Nineveh, um, it is in the book. Um, some of the things, some of the atrocities that were carried out by the, um, by the people of Nineveh. So um, if you do like your blood and guts and gore and you're not easily put off, it is worth researching just exactly how bad the people of Nineveh were. So Nineveh was not a country um, which God had ever shown any favor to um, in any record of the Bible up to this point. Um, Nineveh itself is mentioned six times in the Old Testament, and none of them are for good reasons. Um, in both Second Kings and Isaiah 27, um, we hear that the king of Nineveh has had to return home after being defeated at the hands of the Lord who protected the city of Jerusalem. So from that itself, we can see that Nineveh was not a city filled with God's people, nor was it a city which had been shown favor by the Lord in the past. So why does God choose to send Jonah to tell the people of Nineveh to repent? Why should God choose Nineveh as a city to experience his mercy? Why would God be helping the enemies of his people? Those are all questions which hopefully we will get answers to as we go through this this evening. So firstly, why Nineveh? Secondly, um, why Jonah? So unlike other prophets of the time, Amos and Hosea, Jonah supported the king who was King Jeroboam. So King Jeroboam was king of the time. Amos and Hosea did not support him. Jonah did. Jonah supported his royal administration in spite of the claims of injustice and unfaithfulness. Jonah also supported King Jeroboam in his aggressive military policy to extend the nation's power and influence. Now, why is that relevant? That's relevant because it made the calling of Jonah even more unexpected. The early readers of Jonah would have remembered Jonah as being intensely patriotic and a highly partisan nationalist. So Jonah being called to go to preach to the people of Nineveh was Jonah being called to go to preach to the people who he most feared and hated. So to the early readers, nothing about this calling would have made any sense. Nineveh in itself made no sense. Calling Jonah made no sense. 
This would have seemed to the early readers like some kind of evil plot. How could God have asked anyone to betray his country's interests like this? So we've looked at Nineveh, which was an unexpected destination. We've looked at Jonah, who was the unexpected person to go. Now we're going to spend some time looking at Jonah's reaction to God's call, which after what we've heard so far probably is not an unexpected reaction, considering both the destination and Jonah's personality. So Jonah was called to arise and go, but Jonah arise, arose and went in the opposite direction. So why, from what we've read this evening, do we think that Jonah might have gone in the opposite direction? Later on in Jonah, which we're not getting to this evening, but later on in Jonah, we can hear in his own words, but for now, we can make some assumptions from chapter one. We can safely assume that Jonah thought that this mission made neither practical nor theological sense. Jonah heading to preach in the streets of Nineveh was likened by Tim Keller to a Jewish rabbi going onto the streets of Nazi Germany to preach in 1940, and we can be fairly certain that they would not have lasted long. That's just the kind of um, reception that Jonah figured would be waiting for him on the streets of Nineveh. Jonah would also have struggled to see the theological justification. Um, As for some years prior to this, um, the prophet Nahum had prophesied that God would destroy Nineveh for its evil. So Jonah and Israel would have accepted Nahum's prediction as making perfect sense and would have thought that Nineveh's fate should have been sealed. So here is where we start to see the massive problems within Jonah's own heart and his head. Jonah is questioning the job he was given or the mission he was given by God. And in questioning that mission given from God, then he's also questioning the one from whom the command was given. Jonah was doubting the goodness, wisdom, and justice of God. Jonah also got it wrong in that he was making a judgment as to who was worthy of God's grace and salvation. That was not Jonah's decision or judgment to make. So after doubting God, Jonah ran away, or tried to run away. We can hear now from Paul in Romans chapters 1 to 3, um, who describes two different ways which we can run from God. The first is in Romans chapter 1, um, verse 29, which is a very simple explanation of how we can run away from God. And this will not be surprising to anyone as a way which we can run from God. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. So it's not surprising to anyone that people of that character are running from God. The second reason can be a lot more complicated to get our head around um, and probably um, a lot more relevant to all of us here this evening as a second way 
which Paul describes us running from God. And we can read this in chapter 2, verses 17 um, to 18. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the infants, because you have the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So what's Paul trying to tell us there about a second way of running from God? He tells us in verse chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, that no one is righteous, not even one. All have turned away and sinned. So one group is trying to follow God's law, the other ignores it completely. One group tries to obey all the Father's laws, the other ignores them. And being overly religious, people begin to think that they are virtuous, good, and have paid their dues. Therefore, God is obligated to answer their prayers and do as they ask, not what is actually in God's will. It is not moving towards God with a grateful joy and a glad surrender and love, but it is trying to control God and keep Him at arm's length for your own benefit and needs. So we need to remember that we have all fallen short. We have all sinned. We can never in any way, shape, or form feel that we are superior to others because of our faith in God. We are not better than someone else down the road because we have a trust in God. We cannot start to think of ourselves as being superior and make judgments on other people. And that's a very dangerous place to get caught up in, to be making personal judgments. As it was not Jonah's decision or judgment to make about who received God's salvation and God's grace, it's not ours either. Just because we have received it does not mean that we can decide who else should or should not receive it. So that's probably a much more relevant way which we in this building currently tonight might not even knowingly be running from God. Because in both cases, there is the assumption being made that we, we cannot trust God's commitment for our good. If we're not getting what we need, then we need to look for it elsewhere. We become frustrated and look for what we want by walking away from God. And that's not what we can do. That's not what we should do. We need to trust God. We need to trust His judgment. We need to trust His goodness. So as much as Jonah tried, and as much as sometimes we try to run, God followed Jonah. He wasn't going to let him go. 
So we get now, we've looked at Jonah, we've looked at Nineveh. We're now going to look um, and spend a bit of time looking at the sailors on the ship which Jonah boards in his mission to escape Nineveh and God. These are people which I feel are, again, overlooked too often in this chapter. Hopefully, from what you're going to hear in a few moments, you're going to see just how important the sailors are in this story. Now, these are hardened, experienced, pagan sailors. These are the exact type of people who Jonah was trying to run away from. These are the exact people who Jonah did not want to talk to. These are people who were racially different from Jonah. They are people who were religiously different from Jonah. And people who were in every way the type of people who Jonah did not want to be around and definitely did not want to share the good news of God with. So at this point, we begin to see God's power at work as the storm hits. And we see it best in the reaction of the sailors to this storm. The sailors were terrified. They knew they were in trouble. They saw the power in the storm and they knew they were not going to survive it. These were experienced men. Yet down below, Jonah was still asleep. This sleep was described by the 19th century Scottish minister, Hugh Martin, as the sleep of sorrow. He was spent. He was exhausted. He was emotionally and physically drained by his anger, his guilt, his anxiety, and his grief. Possibly some of you have been there. Some of you know that sleep. Some of you have felt that sleep. Some of you have felt being physically drained, being emotionally drained by whatever emotion it is at the time. So Jonah was asleep. He wasn't alert to the peril that the ship was in. But the pagan sailors were. They were fully alert to what was going on. And they tried to do everything they could to solve the problem for the common good of everyone. And it was everyone they were trying to save. They were looking out for everyone on that ship. They were not in it for themselves. At this point in the story, Jonah was. Jonah couldn't have cared less about who else was on that ship. He was just there for himself. But the pagan sailors weren't. So they pray to their own gods. Jonah didn't pray to his. They were spiritually aware enough to know that some higher power was responsible for this storm. And they were beginning to realize that there was very little they could do on the ship themselves to save themselves in this storm. So this is where the irony comes. The pagan sailor at this point points Jonah to his own God. The man sent to point the pagans towards God ends up needing a pagan sealer to point Jonah to his own God. That's not what Jonah's mission was meant to be. 
It shows just how far Jonah has gone from God at that point, that the pagan sailor on the ship is saying to Jonah, look, why aren't you praying to your God? Why are you just sleeping there? When the pagan sailors find out the truth about Jonah, they show compassion for him. The hardened pagan sailors, they didn't get angry with them. They didn't beat him up. They didn't immediately throw him overboard. They wanted to find another solution. They tried all that they could to find another solution to save themselves and everyone else on that ship. In their sense, they'd exhausted all of their options by praying to their own gods. So they were praying to their own gods. And that's something we look at a little bit, look down on um, with some bit of superiority and ridicule now. Like, what good's that doing? Praying to their own gods. People don't do that nowadays. But don't they? While people may not be praying to the Roman god Mercury, the god of commerce, we can't deny that financial gain and money can become a god or an idol to many people, and a god to which many people sacrifice their own moral standards and personal relationships for financial gain. People become greedy, selfish, and self-seeking. So people may not be praying to the god of Mercury, but they live their lives in pursuit of money. They live their lives for the idol which they place in front of them. Their lives point to nothing but financial gain. People also weren't on social media showing themselves praying to Venus, the goddess of beauty. But many men and women are obsessed with body image and what other people think of them and their appearance. And they would sacrifice everything in the pursuit of a perfect body, in the pursuit of people looking at them and thinking they look great. And only this week we have seen and heard in the news about people paying huge amounts of money to travel to Turkey for cosmetic surgery just so they can have the perfect teeth, just so they can have the perfect nose. It sounds ridiculous, but it is something which is so prevalent in our society nowadays. So while we may look at these sailors and think, them praying to their own gods, that's got no relevance to us today. We don't do that nowadays. We're a more advanced society. People aren't that ridiculous. Well, they are. And it's going on everywhere. Not helped by social media. So we get to the point now where the sailors have no option but to throw Jonah overboard. And what Jonah believes could be his final moments, we get a glimpse, really strong glimpse, into Jonah's mindset. So when he was asked who he was, um, at that time, that question would really have meant, whose are you or to whom do you belong? Jonah replied that he was Hebrew. His first response was, I am a Hebrew. So race for Jonah came before everything else. So we can infer from this that Jonah's ethnicity 
is as important, if not possibly more important, than his faith in God. So this helps us to understand why Jonah was so reticent to go to Nineveh in the first place. He was a Hebrew. He was a proud Hebrew. He was not wanting to go to that pagan land. His race was so important to him, even above his religion. So as Jonah starts to take responsibility for the situation which he had caused, he at this point has a bit of a change of heart and starts to show compassion for the sailors. He tells the sailors that if they throw him overboard, the sea will become quiet for them. So Jonah's done a total 180 at this point. He's stopped thinking about himself. And in fact, the strong, noble character of the sailors, the exact people who he was fleeing, had actually touched Jonah's conscience, and he begins to show love and kindness to these men. The sailors continue to try to avoid throwing Jonah overboard. They try to row ashore, doesn't work. And they finally succumb to the realization that they must throw Jonah overboard. Like as I've said so many times already, these are hard, hardened, experienced, pagan sailors. These were hard men. They knew Jonah was responsible for the storm. So your immediate thought would be like, oh, he's responsible, get him off the ship. That's not what they did. They weren't showing any hatred towards Jonah. They were apologetic to what they, for what they were going to have to do. But yet in the end, they knew there was no other option but for Jonah to go overboard. So as we know, as Jonah is tossed aside, the sea calms. Now that in itself is miraculous. But what's even more interesting at that point is that the sailors were seized by a greater fear than that of the storm. They were seized by fear in the Lord God. Jonah's God, our God, the one true and living God, and immediately made oaths and sacrifices to him. And according to Tim Keller, these weren't just foxhole conversations from the men. They weren't just praying to God in the storm. They actually made their oaths and sacrifices after the danger had passed, indicating that they were not seeking God for what he could do for them in that instance, but they were simply acknowledging the greatness of who God himself is. And that was the beginning of a true faith. I find that part really interesting, the foxhole conversations. It's not a term I had heard before, but they weren't in the midst of the storm. They weren't in the midst of being attacked while they were calling out to God. They called out to God after the storm had already calmed. This just wasn't a, God, please help us now. Oh, you helped us. Great. Let's get on with it. This was a, the storm had already calmed. They saw the power of God and they began to have a true faith in that God. 
So for me, looking through the story of Jonah, the most interesting part I usually find is the journey of the sailors. And it's a part that can be so often overlooked. We talk about Jonah, we talk about the storm, we talk about the fish. But these hardened pagan sailors were transformed through the power of God. And I think it really points to us as an example of God's power. And it points us to God's desire for us as Christians to treat people of different races, cultures, and faiths in a way which demonstrates God's love and to be salt and light pointing people to God. So even though Jonah didn't do it the way God wanted, God in his power was still at work. Tim Keller um, in the book, um, there's a quote from David Timmer who sums up the first chapter of Jonah remarkably well. Um, And David Timmer writes, that Jonah's anti-missionary activity ironically resulted in the conversion of non-Israelites. So Jonah was running away from God's um, plan for him to go and convert non-Israelites. But in running away, God was still able to use him. And as Tim Keller states, This carries us further into the lessons of this book about God's sovereignty. And this is the interesting part. And what God is going to do, he will do. So whether we decide that we are running or not, God will still do what he is going to do. So as we leave here tonight, what do we take away for each of us? What do we take away to look at this upcoming week for us? So have you been called by God to be a witness for him? Have you been called to share the good news of the gospel? And the answer for everyone here tonight who is a believer is yes, you have been called to share the good news of the gospel. For each and every one of you, you have been called to be a witness. For each of you who's a believer, you have been called to be that salt and light pointing people to God. But where is your missionary field? Where have you been called to go? Now, I'm fairly certain that none of you currently are being called to go to one of the fiercest and most violent cities in history. But your mission field might be even more difficult. Your mission field might be your workplace tomorrow. Your mission field might be that person in the office who you sit beside 30 hours a week. Have you talked to them about your faith? Your mission field could be your friends at school. Spend a lot of time with them. Do they know about your faith? Have they heard the good news of the gospel? It could be your friendship group. 
even more difficult. Is your mission field your family? Are there people in your family who you love the most out of everyone? Do they know the good news of the gospel? Do you share your faith with them? And that's the most difficult mission field out of everything. Those people who you love the most, those people who you're closest to, that can be the most difficult mission field out of everything. So don't doubt God's calling as Jonah did. Don't doubt your calling to share the gospel. Don't doubt the sovereignty and power of God. Don't doubt the love which God has for us and the perfect plan he has for our lives. Trust God. Trust his plan. Because what God is going to do, he will do.